Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of One Accord. We had a really interesting discussion scheduled for you today, but then we got thrown a curveball. Apparently, Brother Greg had to uh, get called in to work this morning. And so, unfortunately, we're going to uh, punt that topic until next time, Lord willing. And today we will pivot to another uh, also interesting conversation. And so uh, with me today, as always, is Pastor Eric Love. Uh, Pastor, good to see you this morning. It's uh, one of the benefits that you and I have of only having to work Sunday morning, since this isn't a Sunday morning. We didn't get called into work. So how, how are you today? Hey, I'm great. Another free day with nothing to do uh, except this. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, <laughs> you know, chalk that up. Uh, Greg, I know you're going to be watching. So we keep telling you, you know, you got to get into ministry, get that cushy uh, 30 hour uh, or 30 minute a work, uh, 30 minute work week or whatever. I can't even say it with a straight face. I'm getting all jumbled <laughs> up. But uh, anyway, well, we, we of course miss Greg, but it's um, it's nice to see you today. And uh, of course, we are jesting. There's always uh, much to do in the world of ministry. But um, part of that is uh, talking about uh, theology and, and studying theology. And so today we're going to be uh, pivoting to a, a discussion about something that uh, you've been studying. Actually, this is a topic that I've studied on and off for several years. And for some reason right now, it just has sort of, um, you know, popped up again, uh, to, to, if I could put it that way. And so it it, it will occasionally pop up. And I think sometimes it, it does just simply because uh, I'm going through a book that deals with this topic or, or a, a chapter in a book that deals with this topic. Right now, I'm going through Galatians uh, and we're in chapter five. And I started studying this subject again uh, after going through uh, Paul's discussion about justification and what it means to be justified and uh, what God expects in addition to justification. So that, that's why I've been studying it recently. But when I, the reason why I originally uh, started studying this, I'll say intently, is just because I think when I first got saved, I was sort of taught that, uh, well, you know, if, when, you're, when you're justified through faith, uh, when you first get saved, that's, that's enough right there. As long as you're justified before God, uh, that's all that God expects. And how you live the rest of your life is not, Im not that important. It may affect the rewards you get in the future, but it's not going to affect your salvation because it's not what we do. It's what Jesus has done. And I, I think I, I had heard that message so often. And then when I actually started studying the Bible for myself, I started asking questions uh, like, you know, if justification is all that's necessary, then why are there all these verses that talk about the necessity for practical righteousness, uh, for obedience? And uh, it really got me wondering about it. I, I just, I saw this conflict in scripture and uh, the conflict, it turns out, uh, is not in scripture. But the conflict is with, I think, um, the way that people are viewing justification and sanctification and uh, God's expectations for believers. I, that's that's kind of the the gist of it, right there. Well, as a, a fellow member of the you know professional uh, Christian class, you know, of, of pastors, um, my experience is very similar to yours. You know, this this issue tends to come up. Um, 
I don't know, on a cyclical basis, you know, I can never expect to go too long without hearing somebody talk about the interrelationship between faith and works. And uh, so my, my relationship is very similar. Uh, my, my experience is very similar to yours. And uh, like you, I would say to anybody um, who's serious about reading their Bible, that if you have certain verses uh, that are problematic, um, there's a problem with your system rather than a problem with the scriptures. I remember I taught a class um, uh, from a book that I liked. Uh, it was a you know midweek thing. This was years and years and years ago on uh, the pursuit of holiness. That was the title of the book uh, based on a verse uh, in scripture that says without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And uh, there was a, a friendly church member who stood by the uh, table where the sign-up sheet was and told everybody, either you're holy or you're not. Uh, it's not something that you need to pursue. So you might as well sign up for a different class. And uh, uh, there's no reason to uh, no reason to, to take this class and uh, pursue holiness uh, because you're either holy or you're not. So um, uh, that was an interesting uh, time in ministry uh, for me to, to, to try and uh, navigate some of those issues. And um, hopefully you're not having anything as uh, disruptive as that. But I can already hear it. You know, and I'm, I, I don't know exactly what you're going to say because, um, you know, like I said, we kind of pivoted. And, and so I'm in, very interested to hear your, your, uh, the fruit of your study. Um, but I can already uh, foresee that there will be some who will watch this and probably will hear the seriousness, I think, that you're going to bring up about the importance of works um, as a, uh, maybe as a fruit of faith, as a result of faith, uh, as an evidence of faith, or however else you'll describe it. Uh, but we'll, we'll maybe even want to call you a heretic or a Pelagian or something. And so I guess I want to ask very clearly at the very beginning, do you still hold uh, to the reality that uh, Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, that we're justified not by work so that no one can boast? Um, or would you add a, any modification to that, or, or at least at the beginning, can you set some people at ease that as we're about to talk about deeds that you do still believe that we're justified by by grace through faith alone, uh, and that you're going to kind of talk about works in a different way? Can you just clarify maybe where you're coming from at the beginning before we get into some of the more uh, uh, nitty gritty details of what it is that uh, your personal study has brought out? Sure. Well, my focus is not going to be entirely on works. Um, if if by works you mean like good works giving to charity, um, you know, helping old ladies across the street, things like that. I'm not so much going to be talking about that, although that does play a part in it. But um, my focus, I think, today is going to be on uh, how much holiness of the heart, or, or I, we could say how much, um, how much lack of sin does there need to be in the Christian's life in order for that Christian to be acceptable to God. Now, do I believe that Christians are saved by faith and not by works? Absolutely, I do. I don't believe that our um, our works are what save us. Uh, I don't believe that um, that I can muster up goodness in myself that will save me. Uh, that's not what I believe. I do believe we're saved by faith. And I think as the more we go through this this conversation, the more clear it'll be what exactly I'm talking about. I appreciate uh, appreciate that. And at least wanted to maybe head off some uh, potential objections, you know, to someone who made a rage, uh, rage comment and uh, quit watching the video because they think we're about to say that uh, we're about, we're going to try and earn our way to heaven or something like that. Um, uh, and who knows, you know, people still might have a, a different perspective. But I know as I read the New Testament, as I read the Old Testament, uh, from beginning to end, it seems that salvation is a very serious matter. And uh, nobody ever says in there, you know, as long as you pray to prayer with every head closed, you know, every head bowed and every eye closed, as long as you raised your hand, as long as you walked the aisle, as long as you did these things, don't worry about anything else. I mean, they do seem to talk a lot about matters of personal holiness that the, um, 
transaction that happens when we put our faith in Christ, that we are transferred out of the domain of, of Satan and into the uh, kingdom of his beloved son, when we are uh, brought from death to life, that we are no longer darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. All of these things are, uh, these are realities that should have some actual manifestation. There should be some tangible evidence. And so our, our lives should be different. We should be walking in newness of life. Does that mean we become perfect? Of course not. Does that mean that there's never any sin in our life? No, it doesn't mean that. Um, but there should be a growing evidence. Um, eh, that's what I see. And so, you know, to say that our works are meritorious or something, I would personally, you know, no, we don't earn our salvation, not in any way. But if we are genuinely saved, the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in us. We are truly in Christ. Um, then the work that God began of conforming us more and more into the image and likeness of his son will result in more and more personal holiness uh, over time. Does that mean that it's a, a constant, never-ending, you know, every day is more holy than the last without any interruption? I, I wouldn't put it that way. Um, but um, just at the beginning, I figured out, you know, I, I appreciate where you're coming from. I want to be clear kind of where I'm coming from. And uh, so I'll turn it over to you. I, I don't know where you'd like us to start. Well, I'll begin uh, where you left off. And that is, uh, as I was studying this, this topic of how good is good enough, uh, what, what exactly does God expect from Christians, it, it became clear to me at, at the beginning that God does not expect perfection. Now, some will object to this, and they'll say, well, yes, he does, because in uh, Matthew 5.48, Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that, that verse has led some people to believe that God really does expect sinless perfection. Uh, now, without going into too much detail, I just want to point out that uh, that interpretation is highly unlikely. Uh, because in the very next chapter, in Matthew 6, 12, Jesus told Christians to, uh, to confess their sins. He told them to pray, um, uh, you know, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So it's interesting that if Jesus was uh, commanding sinless perfection in Matthew 5, 48, uh, it's interesting that in the very next chapter, uh, in Matthew 6, 12, he would tell Christians to ask for forgiveness for your sins on a regular basis. So uh, it seems to me that uh, Matthew 5, 48 is not a command to attain perfection, but it, it's it's something that Christians should strive for. Now, why should Christians strive for perfection if they can't um, attain to perfection? Well, the reason is because if you strive for it, you don't attain perfection, but you do attain holiness. And just to give you, a, a I guess, maybe a, a, a sort of a dumb example, but it's it'll make the point. Years ago, uh, I made a goal uh, to uh, to bench press 450 pounds, and I set that goal, thinking that, well, maybe I can't, maybe I can't reach this, but I'm going to try really hard. And I trained for a long time uh, to try and reach that goal. Uh, now I never reached the goal, but I came close, and it was only by uh, setting the that goal so high that allowed me to. Uh, gain the strength that I did, and I, I think that's I think that's the idea there that uh, it, perfection, being as perfect as the Father is perfect, is not attainable 
but it's something to strive for because if you strive for it, you do gain holiness. And I, that's how I interpret uh, Matthew 5.48. Uh, and there's some other interpretations too, I think, that are um, somewhat reasonable, but that's, that's the position I take. Interesting. Uh, how close did you get to 450? I mean, what was the number you hit? I don't want to say. I, no, I, come on. I don't want to brag about I don't. I don't want to brag. <laughs> well, I'm I'm trying to conceal. I'm trying to conceal certain. I don't. I don't want this. I don't want this example to be about how strong I got. That, okay, that was, that's that's yeah. not the point that I was. I just wanted to know how close you got to that perfect uh, 450 bench. Is all. Um, no, I, I tell you what. I, I will. T- I will reveal that secret to you uh, after the podcast is over. How about that? all right? And then what you tell me in secret, can I declare from the rooftop? That, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's a Bible joke, everybody. All right. Um, well, listen, I think that the, um, the, the last part of that, I can say I'm on board with a hundred percent. And I've talked about this with some other people, you know, in our, our ministry context, I think that sometimes the effect of focusing on what I believe is a biblical truth, that we are saved by the grace of God through faith alone, not by works, lest anyone should boast that sometimes that results in us taking the bar of personal holiness and setting it on the ground and thinking as long as we just kind of just lazily step over that very, very low minimal bar that God is just pleased with whatever, whatever leftovers we give to him. I think that that falls so short of what Jesus really explained as, as the heart uh, of the greatest commandment to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we would be so thankful and so rejoicing that he would love us enough to die for us, to cleanse us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, so that in him we could be holy and blameless and pure, and that we should desire to set the bar very, very high, not to try and earn anything, but just out of this loving response. And an analogy that I've used before, um, I liked your example of of kind of setting goals. I think of a a relationship example that maybe is also helpful, um, not necessarily just a personal growth example, but a relationship example. Um, if I say that I love my wife and I do, um, shouldn't my actions reflect that? Like if all I ever, if my actions are just like, well, I love my wife and she loves me and it's all unconditional. And so I just, you know, I never pick up my socks off the floor. I never say I love you. I never do anything for her. I'm constantly just living a life that irritates her. I'm constantly living like I'm a bachelor, you know, uh, like that's not honoring to this person that I have a relationship with. And so God is not an abstract ideal. He is a person, a holy person who has paid the, the, the very precious price in his sight of shedding the blood of his own beloved son so that you and I could be brought near to him and, and enter into a relationship to, to have access to our Father in heaven, uh, to be called the children of God. And shouldn't we want to then reflect his glory by living righteously, living holy? Um, I, I do interpret Matthew 5 a little bit differently than you. Um, I do think that Jesus is setting the standard for entrance into the kingdom, and it is perfection, and that's why we need a Savior, because he is perfect. Um, but like I said, I, I don't think that um, uh, certainly, as he's telling us how we're to live, because we we can't be perfect on our own, we must cling to Christ, and then how we work out our personal righteousness. Um, it, it's it's similar to the Old Testament. Uh, I don't want to derail you too much, but I did, do have a follow-up. Like, how, how much does the view of the Old Testament righteousness impact um, even what Jesus was saying there in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7? Because David says some things in the Psalms that um, I know people have asked me about, I've, I've wrestled with. David clearly is a man who wasn't perfect. Um, you know, he was uh, in many ways a hero of the faith, but then in many ways he, he stumbled and fell in, in terrible, terrible ways, um, made hugely, hugely uh, 
big errors in judgment and 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 just had terrible consequences for his own personal life and even for the nation that he was leading. And yet he says things in the Psalms like, deal with me, O God, according to my righteousness, which is a a scary type of prayer. Like, right? I mean, if, if we realize we're not perfect, um, why would we want to ask God to deal with us uh, according to our righteousness? Like, doesn't that seem so to to violate um, the the idea that we want God to deal with us, not according to us, but according to Christ. Um, do you do you think there's any carryover between the Old Testament idea of righteousness and what David's expressing there? Um, or is it because it's a new covenant thing and an old covenant thing? I mean, is, is righteousness and holiness completely different? It seems to me that many of the people that were hearing Jesus explain what he was explaining in the Sermon on the Mount would have had an Old Testament view of righteousness in mind, which doesn't seem to be perfection because David David wasn't saying, deal with me as if I'm perfect, because that would have been a very dangerous prayer to pray. True. That, that's, that's a great question and a great point. I think uh, absolutely when, when Jesus and Paul and Peter talked about righteousness, um, they would uh, sometimes quote um, Old Testament passages, passages from the Torah uh, to support their positions. For example, uh, Peter, he, um, he quoted the passage, be holy, uh, for I am holy. And that's, of course, God speaking in that passage. And he applied that to uh, his readers. He said, you need to be holy because God is holy. And so it's it's not as if like the, the concept of righteousness in the Old Testament is nowhere to be found in the New. Uh, that's not true. It, there, it, it carries over into the New. Uh, obviously, we're under a new covenant, and there are different, um, I'll say different, requirements, but uh, but righteousness does carry over. And the, the word blameless is often used in the New Testament and applied to, or Christians are told to be blameless. And that verse, of course, is is found originally in, in the Old Testament. And to be blameless basically uh, means to walk in integrity. It doesn't, it's not referring to sinless perfection, but it's somebody who is, uh, who's walking in integrity. They're, they're living consistently um, you know, according to uh, the word of God. And as far as, as far as David, when, when David says, deal with me according to my righteousness, um, I, I think we, you know, we, we might be tempted to think that, like you said, well, you know, David was, uh, David thought he was more righteous than he really was. But David says repeatedly in the Psalms that he has sin in, in his life. Um, he, he speaks of um, God you know, forgiving his iniquities. He talks about, it's interesting if you, if you compare, uh, I think it's Psalm 25 and 26. Uh, I think it's Psalm 25 where, where David says, um, you know, I've led a blameless life. And then in Psalm 26, he says, uh, forgive me for my iniquities are many. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, blameless and sinless are not synonyms. Uh, so there's, uh, there's, some, there's some difference there. But, but David can say, you know, like, you know, if if Dave, if there was a situation where David was being accused of something he didn't do, then David can rightly say, "God, deal with me according to my righteousness, because you know what they're claiming I did, I did not do." Yeah, and and I think that in in some texts where David, because there's more than one text, I think where David mentions his his righteousness, and I think in some of those texts, it's righteousness pertaining to a particular situation or a particular issue. And he's defending himself uh, against his accusers. Yeah. So I, I think that's 
there, there might be some some specific contextual things there that need to be yeah. looked at. You know, this is a this is another area where there's a spectrum, right? On one end of the spectrum, there are um, hypocritical Christians who think that they're better than everybody. You know, they they look down at everybody, look down at their nose, and, and they're they're just like the Pharisees, right? To, you know, thank you God that I'm not like these other like these sinners. You know, um, they lack any kind of humility, and quite frankly, um, everybody who knows them is very aware of all of their faults, uh, but they seem to be completely oblivious to them. Seeing this, the the speck in your brother's eye and, and being oblivious to the log in your own. On the other end of the spectrum is the idea that, you know, Christians are just a, a mess. Everything's wrong. We're just these lousy sinners. That's all we are. And, and we have no victory. We have no uh, freedom from sin. And both of those extremes, I think, are extremely dangerous. And I think that David is an interesting example of someone who, was very quick, um, you know, he, he needed to be confronted like by Nathan the prophet with, with his great sin with Bathsheba. But as soon as he was exposed, um, he, he admitted his own faults and he agreed with God. And when God said, what you did was wrong, he said, you're right, I'm wrong. And when he said, this is going to be the, pun- the penalty, he said, that's right, you know, that's, that's good. And so being righteous, uh, being holy, uh, a lot of that includes just confessing our own faults, acknowledging them, seeking forgiveness when we need it. If I, if I do something wrong, pretending that I'm righteous, that everything I do is right, is getting me closer to that pharisaical, legalistic, hypocritical view. Whereas um, having the humility to say, look, I set the bar higher than this. I should respond better than this, or I should be more patient than this, or I should be more kind than this. And I failed, and I'm sorry about that. And you know, I, I acknowledge that I'm, you know, I'm not perfect. And, and you know, will you forgive me? These are things that are righteous. And so, of course, the standard for entrance to heaven is perfection. David needs a savior just like you and I need a savior. Um, But for those of us who aren't perfect, who rely on a perfect savior, as that perfect savior is being formed in us, as our character is being more and more conformed, as we're in process, along the way, the righteous thing for us to do is acknowledge when we fall short and to agree it's not right. It's not right when you sin, and it's not right when I sin. And I'm not just going to point my finger at you and say, oh, you, you need to do better. I need to do better. And to acknowledge that, I think that many people, in the, especially in the unbelieving world, um, I think that they'd appreciate that. I think that that comes as a breath of fresh air. I know when witnessing, sometimes people are like, oh, you think you're perfect? No, I'm not saying I'm perfect at all. I need to save you just as much as you do. Uh, I just have found him. He's come into the world. And so I want to tell you about him because we are on the Titanic and it's going down. And in this case, there is a savior and we can all be saved if we no longer are unbelieving, but believe. And so, um, but people hear evangelism often as I'm better than you. You should come to my church and be good and holy and righteous like me. Um, that's not what I'm saying. And I do think that there are some aspects probably of the, the conversation as it continues that we'll talk about, you know, our conduct should be, it should be cleaned up. And as we're setting that bar high, we should be, you know, being actually holier, not just in, in thought, not just constantly saying, oh, I'm just, a, I'm just a rotten sinner. It's all I do. I just wallowing in the muck and the mire. We should be coming out of that. But, um, but I think that the righteousness that David expresses is he was fairly quick to acknowledge um, his own faults. And he was very quick, uh, certainly, to acknowledge God's righteousness, uh, particularly in, in, in comparison to his own and um, I think that those are good standards for us to retain in the New Testament, because like you said uh, just a, a few moments ago, the New Testament authors, they are often quoting these same passages. So there's a dangerous movement now with Christians trying to unhitch the New Testament from the Old Testament, and we lose, we lose so much context, we lose so much understanding of what 
what holiness, what righteousness, um, what all those things really mean if we unhitch. So, um, so I'm, I'm with you. And again, I'm, although I might slightly disagree with your interpretation of Matthew five, you might slightly disagree with mine. I, we're still in the same ballpark. So it's not a, you know, not a huge disagreement. I don't think the application really changes much. So, um, where would you take us from, from there? Yeah. Well, uh, I just, I, as I studied the new Testament, uh, and the old, of course, too. You can't um, you can't divorce the old. I have just found over and over again that uh, texts that uh, make it clear that uh, God does not expect perfection from Christians. Um, James three two. We all stumble in many ways. James said, "We all." James is including himself in that. First hmm. uh, John one eight. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And again, John is including himself there. We, if we claim to be without sin. Uh, so there, there's so many other texts that could be, that could be mentioned. But the, the, the clear teaching of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, is that nobody, uh, not even the holiest of men, are without sin. And uh, Christians are saved by faith and faith does not involve sinless perfection. I've read these verses before. I think I want to read them again because I want to, I want to just hammer this point. Um, this is Galatians chapter 3. And this is verses 10 to 11. And this is what Paul says. He says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. Why? For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. The Galatians were uh, at least considering uh, seeking justification through the law. And Paul said, if you want to try and do that, uh, here's how high the bar is. In order to be justified by the law, you have to follow the law perfectly. No mistakes, no, no sins, nothing at all. And if you fall short of that, you can't be justified. But then in verse 11, he says, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. Notice he's contrasting justification through the law, which requires sinless perfection, and justification through faith, which, according to the contrast, does not involve sinless perfection. So faith is not sinless perfection. It's something else. It's, it's trust. We'll talk more about what faith does. Um, in the believer's life. But I just want to make that clear right from the beginning that God does not expect sinless perfection. Now, some may argue, well, we are told to be, we're told to be perfect throughout the New Testament. And the word perfect, uh, in many places, it means mature or uh, complete. It's not talking about absolute perfection. So I, I need to make that distinction. Um, now, I, as I, as I was studying this, I realized this, of course, we're saved by faith. Um, the Bible's very clear about that. Um, but there are other things that Paul and the other apostles say, and Jesus said, that make it seem as if just having faith uh, is, is not enough. Let me, let me give you an example again from the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Paul says, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in 
Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Now, Paul says that very clearly in Galatians 2.16. But then later in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, Paul says this, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So in the beginning of Galatians, Paul says, you're saved by faith, not by works. And then toward the end of Galatians, Paul says, but if you are practicing sin, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And this is a warning to the Galatians who were believers. Uh, so the Bible says you're saved by faith, but it also says practicing sin can prevent you from entering the kingdom of God. So God does not expect perfection, but he does seem to expect righteousness. And not just imputed righteousness, but practical righteousness, which is the righteousness that Paul's talking about there in, in Galatians chapter 5. So that's, there, there, there is a, a tension, at least it seems that way on the surface, if you just kind of quickly read through these things. And uh, a lot of Christians have have wondered about this, and this is not the only uh, this this is not the only verse that that mentions things like this. I mean, in First Corinthians chapter six, Paul lists verses that can keep uh, he lists verses he lists sins uh, that he says can keep uh, people out of the kingdom. And he's not talking about unbelievers; he's talking to the Corinthians. He's warning the Corinthians: if you live like this. You can't enter the kingdom of God. So the the question is, God doesn't expect perfection. He expects faith. But yet there is this practical righteousness that has to be present in the Christian life. We can't be living in sin. We can't be, uh, you know, we can't be practicing sin is, is the word that Paul uses in Galatians. So how do we solve this this dilemma? Because it seems, at least on the surface, like like a problem. It seems like kind of like a contradiction. And I think the answer is that practical righteousness is not something that Christians muster up within themselves. It's not something that comes from our own power. Instead, it's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. So on the so. On the one hand, yes, we do have to we do have to live righteously. On the other hand, that righteousness does not come from our own power, our own abilities, our own uh, skills, whatever. It, it comes through the Holy Spirit. So our responsibility is not so much to, you know, muster up some. Righteousness in ourselves, that's, that's not what we're supposed to do. Our responsibility 
is to submit to the influence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And if you read later in, uh, in Galatians chapter 5, right after Paul gets done talking about the, um, the, the sins that will you know, keep you out of, out of heaven, keep you out of the kingdom, uh, he goes on to talk about walking in the Spirit. And if we walk in the Spirit, we won't live the way that Paul described earlier. We're going to live a holy way. We're going to live in a way that's pleasing to God, in a way that's acceptable to God. Uh, so that, that's, how I, that's how I solve the dilemma, and because there really is no dilemma. We are, we're saved by faith. Uh, we are uh, accepted by God through our faith in the atoning work of Christ. Christ died for our sins. It's Christ's sacrifice that makes us right and acceptable to God. Uh, we don't earn justification through our own righteousness. But once we get saved and once we receive the Holy Spirit, we're required to submit to the influence of the Holy Spirit. And the more we submit to his influence, the holier we become. The more our hearts are changed, the more we conform to the image of Christ. That's our responsibility. It's not about just mustering up some kind of power or willingness within ourselves. It's about submitting to the influence of the Holy Spirit, who is continually moving us further down the path of sanctification. And as long as we're on the path of holiness, we can be confident that we'll be accepted into the kingdom of God. And um, there's some other passages that I, that as I was studying this um, a few years ago, some other passages that I thought were really important uh, that are connected with this topic. And this is, this comes from Second Peter chapter 1. And Peter says, this is Second Peter 1, this is verses 5 through 11. I know that these are, this is kind of a lot of verses, but I, just, I think these are important. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. And here's the key. This is verse 11. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. So it sounds like what Peter is saying is, you can have confidence that you're going to be welcomed into the kingdom of Christ if you're growing in holiness, if you're, if you're growing in uh, Christian virtue, if you're, if, if you're becoming more like Christ, basically. So I, I think some Christians have said, and actually many, uh, many on both sides of the aisle have said that, you know, God, you know, God does expect holiness um, in order to enter heaven. Uh, but it's not, it's not like a certain level of holiness. It's not like, okay, 
if you're here, but you need to get here and then you die, you know, you've lost all. I don't see it as so much arriving at a particular point or a particular level of holiness. I see it more so as just continual growth in holiness. And it sounds like that's what Peter's talking about in 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 11. If we're growing in holiness, if, if our character is, uh, is constantly becoming more and more like Christ, and again, like you said, Joe, there, it doesn't mean there's no interruptions at all along the way, because there, there is. But if, if there's constant growth, if it's, if it's consistent, then uh, we, can, we can be confident that, that we will uh, enter the kingdom of God. And we do all of that through faith. Faith is, faith is the key. We're saved by faith. Uh, we are sanctified even by faith. Because faith is not just something that, it's not just believing in uh, a certain, certain correct information. But faith, true faith, motivates us to pursue holiness. It motivates us to follow Christ. It, faith has a way of moving us uh, down the path of, of holiness toward the kingdom of God. So that, uh, that in a nutshell, there's a lot more that could be said, but uh, in a nutshell, that's, that's how I uh, solve the dilemma. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. And uh, you never have to apologize to me for a lot of scripture. I, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm good with that. I think uh, more scripture is uh, often a good thing. Um, I'm surprised uh, at this point in the conversation that we haven't really talked about more about James. I know you mentioned some passages from James, but uh, the typical tension that I've heard, at least in my discussions with people about the the relationship between faith and, and deeds, is often trying to put uh, Paul and James against each other. But the point that James is making, of course, is that you know our our deeds actually are tied to justification. Is I think very much a good follow up to what you were just saying that our our faith, what we really believe. Um, is illustrated by what we do. If you believe that it's wrong to steal, you won't steal. Like that's just, you know, you can't say, well, I believe it's wrong to steal, but I'm a, a thief. I just live as a thief. Um, well, that doesn't match up, right? That doesn't make any sense. If you believe that what you're drinking is poison, you won't drink it because you don't want to do that. So, um, you know, the, the idea that we can have faith, um, that what's in my heart doesn't come out and manifest itself in my life um, is very contrary to really everything Jesus taught. You know, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that it's from the overflow of our heart, our mouth speaks. So the things that we speak about, that really shows us what, what, what we care about. Um, the things that we do shows us what we care about. We can say that we're good, charitable people, but does your actions demonstrate that? Do, do people see that? Do what you do, does that, does that matter? And I think that that's been a big disconnect um, with a lot of Christians that I talk to is, is we've relegated faith to being something that resides only in our heart and doesn't manifest itself in any way. Like, and, and people say, well, who are you to question what I believe? I'm not here to question what you believe. But this, the teaching of scripture shows us that what we believe, it, it flows out of us. And so, you know, I, I, people, you know, I don't know, yelling at you about how you should be compassionate and kind and, and caring and stuff like while well, they got veins bulging out of their neck and they're screaming at you and like they're showing you they're showing you their hatred while they're they're telling you that they're loving um and and it's it's obvious to anybody who would look at it just take a step back i know i was uh, doing some witnessing with some guys um on a college campus and um there was a lot of hate being spewed only from the non-believers and and it was funny, I was actually talking with someone who was interested in some of the conversations that were going on. And, and I, I even just, I just drew, the, drew their attention to it. 
because they, they were blind to it at first, but they go, you know, you guys are here and you're hateful, you know, talking about Jesus being the only way and stuff. That's very, um, you know, small minded and, and bigoted. And, um, you know, they might've even called us racist and all, you know, all the terms, right. You're just throwing out all the names. And I said, will you just stand here with me for just a second and, and just observe. I said, listen, listen to the language that's being used. You're going to hear some curse words, but none of it'll be from my friends. You're going to hear some name calling, but none of it'll be from my friends. You're going to see people yelling angrily, but none of it will be from my friends. Just watch. And you tell me if I'm wrong. And you'll see that it's, it's only the peaceful, loving, tolerant friends of yours who are yelling all the name calling and, and doing all of the hateful things. Like there's, there is hate being expressed here, um, but it's only on one side. And if you guys disagree with us, that's fine. Um, clearly, we disagree. I think one thing, you think a different thing. Um, but our, our purpose in being here is because we think that this is true and that it's a benefit to you and our motivation is love and you can see it in the demeanor of the people who are, are here and while you guys think that you're being tolerant it's it's hostile and angry and mean-spirited <laughs> there is no uh no willingness to even you know hear our perspective or try and, and and talk to us you know and so what comes out matters and so not to pick on unbelievers, but to, uh, for believers who say that they have this faith in their heart and yet don't do anything that Jesus says to do, I, I feel like Jesus's words to the, the disciples, like, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Like, I thought you believed in me. If you believe in me, shouldn't there be some, shouldn't there be some action? And I know that um, there, that's why our group has, we've written a bunch of tracks that are actually not to unbelievers or to, to professing unbelievers, but to professing believers saying, does the fruit of your life exhibit the fruit of the spirit? Or does it exhibit the deeds of the flesh? Um, those things that, that you were uh, pointing us to in, in Galatians chapter five, these contrasts. So I have a, a follow-up question. I appreciate you kind of answering that question. How good is good enough? Because that's the question that you asked. It sounds to me, and, and you can correct me if I misunderstood you, uh, the answer to how good is good enough isn't really a quantitative, like you must attain this standard of righteousness, but that you should be on that process of growing in righteousness. As long as you're on that, that path, um, we should have some confidence that even if we see if we see sin in our life still, if we see areas where, where God's grace still has to um, conform us more and more into the image and likeness of Christ, but we see that that is happening, we should be uh, relieved. We should be confident that we are on the path of salvation and that, the, 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 as Peter said in that last passage you read, the, the, uh, the entryway into our Lord's eternal kingdom will be abundantly supplied to us as long as we see growth. Was I understanding you correctly? That's right. Yep. Okay. So my, my follow-up question to that then would be, uh, you know, personal interest. And then of course, for anybody who's listening, if this is, as you said, um, really the responsibility of the Holy Spirit, but then we read this passage in, in Peter and it talks about things that maybe we should be doing. We should be adding these things. What is my responsibility? What is your responsibility? If someone comes into your office and says, pastor, what is my responsibility as a Christian? Because if it's the Holy Spirit's responsibility, am I just passive or do I have something that I'm supposed to be doing in order to, um, maybe allow the Holy Spirit or s submit to the Holy Spirit or participate in what the Holy Spirit is doing? How, how does that interaction work? What is my role? Is it passive? Is it active? Somewhere in between? How would you, how would you define that uh, better for someone who's trying to do this and wants the Holy Spirit to do it? What do I do? Do I just sit back and let it happen? That's a great question. And I, I am not uh, embarrassed to say, because I know some people would just recoil at this idea, but I, I have no problem with saying that we uh as christians have a responsibility to 
you know, resist sin. Uh, we we have a responsibility to um, to walk in the Spirit. Paul Paul told the Galatians, "Walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh." Some Christians act like walking in the Spirit is something that just happens automatically. Like we have the Holy Spirit, and you're just automatically going to walk in the Spirit now. I don't think that's that could possibly be true in light of all the commands to walk in the Spirit and the warnings about not walking in the Spirit. So clearly we have a responsibility. Um, and there's other passages like uh, in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, where uh, Paul says, let us you know, throw out all defilement of flesh and uh, perfecting our holiness in the fear of God. Let us do this, he says. We're to do this. We have a responsibility. So I, I don't think there's anything contradictory about the idea that Christians have to be involved in their sanctification. It's God who began a work in us, and he'll bring it to completion. But we have to cooperate with that work. And I think rather than just trying really hard to be good, we have to submit to the Holy Spirit's influence in our lives. Uh, in, in Ezekiel 36, uh, 26 and 27, it's basically describing what God will do for the believer under the new covenant. And he says, I'll, I'll put my spirit in you and I will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This, this similar idea is in Philippians 2.13, where it says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. So what, what's happening is if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit is working in you. The Holy Spirit is moving in you. Um, but what you have to do is you have to submit to the influence of the Holy Spirit. You see, it's kind of like a it's kind of like a tug of war match. We have the Holy Spirit pulling us one way, and we have the flesh pulling us the other way. And our responsibility is to resist the pull of the flesh and to submit to the pull of the spirit. And if we're doing that regularly, that's called walking in the Spirit. We have to make up our minds to do that. Uh, Paul said in Romans 8, I think it was verse 5, those who are according to the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit or on the things that are pleasing to the Spirit. So, so our responsibility is it's always mentioned, it's always the same thing all, all the time. It's walk in the Spirit, uh, give in to the influence of the Spirit. So we, in, in the Christian life, there's this struggle. The Spirit is moving us one way, the flesh is moving us the other way. And we have to submit to the influence of the Spirit, and that's, that is our responsibility to do. Uh, we, we certainly don't do that perfectly. We make a lot of mistakes. We sometimes, uh, we sometimes almost, it's almost like we, uh, you know, we, we've, we've resisted the Spirit, and maybe not even intentionally, but just, just out of weakness and out of um, just frustration with our circumstances. Uh, but we we sort of like, you know, we we stop walking consistently in the spirit. That does happen sometimes. But uh, and God is gracious and, and patient with us as we're struggling with these things. But we do have to make sure that our our mind is set, our will is set to walk in the spirit, to give in to his influence. And as we read scripture, it becomes more clear to us. Um, what the Spirit expects from us and what he's moving us to do. I think that's one of the beautiful things about Scripture is, yes, we have the Holy Spirit in us, and it's a 
it's a personal experiential thing. Um, but sometimes we wonder, is this, is it the spirit that's moving me to do this or is it something else? And the scriptures reveal to us what the spirit moves us to do, the kinds of things or the kinds of attitudes that the spirit wants us to have. And so we can, we can read the scriptures and, and go, okay, I feel like I, I want to be angry at this person. And the scripture says I, I should avoid anger. Uh, so I know that this anger is not from the spirit. It's, it's, uh, it's from the flesh. And so we, we know from scripture which influences the spirit and which one is, is otherwise. But I, our responsibility, Paul says and others say, it's, it's always um, uh, walking in the Holy Spirit. I've told people before, uh, and I'm not trying to be overly simplistic, but if you really want to get the essence of what it means to be a new covenant believer, um, the practical aspect, I'm not talking about putting your faith in Christ. I'm talking about, okay, we've put our faith in Christ. Now what do we, what do? We do? Um, Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, Galatians chapter 5. Those chapters are intensely practical. And there is some theory to it, um, you know, about, okay, well, what does it mean to put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit and, and, and you know, to submit ourselves and to, to not do the things that we want to do, but to do the things that the Spirit is leading us to do. Um, that, that is maybe for some people vague, but that is the moment by moment, day by day, week by week, year by year process that, that it doesn't happen automatically. Like that's what we should be setting our attention to, that we should say, God, I, I, before I believed in you, I used to just do what seemed right in my own eyes. And I used to follow after my own pursuits, whatever my various lusts and impulses were. I tried to, to gratify those things or, or to just do, you know, whatever my responsibilities were. Now I want to submit myself to you. I want to uh, continuously reckon myself dead to all those things that I used to live to, that now I want you to, to live in me and through me for the praise and glory of your great name. And it's really easy to get distracted from that. It's really easy to forget that. We can rejoice that we're not saved by our ability to do it perfectly. We're, we're saved by Christ's perfect righteousness. And we understand that his perfect righteousness is the end of righteousness. Like that's, that's you know, for everyone who believes, we are, we are given that as a gift, but it should start to work its way out. And, and the Holy Spirit is going to lead us. He is going to lead us in all truth. He is going to lead us in accordance with his nature, which is holy. He is the Holy Spirit. And so some people, I, I, I see it a lot, you know, they, they attribute their immoral, unholy behavior to the leading of the Spirit. Or I hear people say things to me, you know, well, I'm just not convicted about that. So it must not be sin for me. But the Holy Spirit is in us individually, and that's that same Holy Spirit who inspired the Word of God. And so as we look to the Word of God, the Word of God tells us what holiness looks like, what righteousness looks like. And it's funny how many people, especially in our modern day, you know, we say, well, don't judge. You can't be judging. They, they fail to realize that it's actually the ones who are in disagreement with God's standard. They're the ones who are judging. They're, they're trying to kick God off the throne and say, I'm going to be in the place of God. I will tell you what's good and right. I'm going to judge, and this behavior or this activity um, doesn't bother me. Whereas what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 5, these, these practices, these lifestyles, these deeds, which really cover, I mean, pretty much everybody. It's not like it's picking on one group. You know, like there's th these deeds of the flesh, they're represented in, in everybody who's, not, who's walking by the flesh. Um, he says, don't be deceived. 
those who practice these things will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And uh, like you, I've I've heard many people who on one side seem to think, no, it doesn't matter. As long as we've as long as we walk the aisle or as long as we raised our hand, as long as we really feel like we mean it, we can practice these things and it's fine. God's fine with it. Um He's not. The Holy Spirit inspired these words to tell us, don't be deceived. If you're practicing these things, um, you're not on the path of righteousness. But that doesn't mean that you're going to not still struggle with some of these things. Um, like you were even, your example that you were using, I can relate to that. Um, I don't want to sin in my anger, but that doesn't mean that all the anger that I have just disappeared once I came to Christ. Like I still get angry sometimes. And even Christ himself got angry, you know, um, he somehow was able to turn over tables without entering into sin. I, if I'm turning over tables, I'm probably sinning, uh, almost certainly. Um, but, you know, there are certain things that make God angry. And I think that we should be angry about those things. And yet God loved even his enemies. And, you know, we are, as Christians, supposed to pray for our persecutors, love our enemies, bless those who curse us. It's not supposed to, I'm not supposed to react in the flesh and and, and be a, you know, uh, just a fleshly person. and and. Again, even as someone who's been walking with the Lord for almost two decades now, my still, my natural default is still to default to the things of the flesh. And so I have to every day be um, not passive, but active saying, Lord, I want to walk in your spirit. I want to be filled by your spirit. I want to be led by your spirit. I want your spirit to give me the strength that I need to put to death the deeds of the flesh. I need you to give me the wisdom and discernment that I need to, to make no provision for the flesh, um, to, to begin to cut those things out of my life. That would uh, be a distraction from me serving you fully with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then I need him to actually do it. And that's the, the promise. But, um, you know, I, I've, I've had people tell me that that sounds like I'm being a synergist and, you know, that makes me a heretic because I'm, I'm taking glory away from God. None of these efforts on our own would produce any of this stuff if it weren't for the Holy Spirit. So God, of course, gets all the credit. If there's any merit to be earned, it's all God is the one to be praised in, in this process. Um, but if we neglect to do the things that God has told us to do, um, then we bear all the responsibility. We bear all the blame. And, um, you know, I certainly don't want to blaspheme the name of the Lord, um, by, by saying that, you know, he is unable to set me free from certain sins simply because I'm just not even, I'm not doing the things that he told me to do. I'm not submitting myself to him. So I don't know if you, um, would push back on any of that, or if you would articulate it differently, but I think for people uh, who are curious as to what it means to walk by the spirit, what that really looks like. Um, spend some time and, and prayerfully read through Romans six, seven, and eight Galatians chapter five. And, um, I think those are not the only places, but certainly two of the best places to kind of give a, a more complete view that it's not just this ecstatic experience. It's not just us doing whatever we want. It is about us actively submitting ourselves to the lead of the Holy spirit residing in us so that God in and through his grace will transform us into the image and likeness of Christ. You you agree with that or, or would you push back on any of that stuff that I'm I'm saying now? I think those ver those chapters are vital. Um particularly uh Romans 6 and 8. Uh I I have I, I we may differ a little bit on um or maybe even differ entirely on our interpretation of Romans 7 and what its purpose is, but I think Romans 6 and 8 and uh Galatians chapter 5 I think are um, are very, very instructive when it comes to uh, walking in the spirit. What it means to walk in the spirit. What's involved in that? Yeah, I think those those texts are are some of the the uh, some of the key texts dealing with this this topic. Well, now you've piqued my interest about Romans seven. 
Yeah, well, um, my view of Romans 7 is when it comes to verses 14 through uh, 23, I, I personally don't believe Paul uh, was referring to himself there. And I know that may sound surprising because he speaks in the first person. And it sounds as if he's describing uh, his, his present Christian life. I think the context makes that very difficult to accept. Um, if, you, if you read in the beginning of, of Romans 7, Paul seems to be, he's describing the relationship between the sin nature and the law. And he says, a, a sin nature that's under the law is, um, it's actually excited to sin even more. It's, it's energized by the law. The law, and the problem is not with the law, the problem is with the sin nature. And when, when somebody who is unregenerate is exposed to the law of God, the law, rather than making them uh, righteous, it actually increases their desire to sin. And Paul described that in Romans, uh, what was it, 7 5, 7 7, different places. Um, he mentions something very similar to that in Romans chapter 5, I think it's verse 20. And uh, in, in Romans 7 14 through 23, I think he's, he's speaking as if he's a Jew under the law who wants to follow God, but can't because of the relationship between the flesh and the law. And then in Romans 8, 1, he says, but now, but now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The word now is very important because it's, it's contrasting uh, the Christian's present uh, condition with something that was previous. With I, what I believe is um, was the condition of a Jew uh, trying to please God under the law through the flesh. Uh, that's I, I think that's the most natural way to take it. Obviously, there are there's plenty of people that disagree with me. Maybe even most people do. Um, I, I'm okay with that. But I think that the I think the context uh, is it makes it really hard for me to believe that Paul was describing his present Christian condition. In Romans 7, 14 through 23, like, for example, he says, you know, I, I'm a slave to sin. Well, in Romans 6, he, he said Christians are not slaves to sin. Um, he talked about, really, if you if you read Romans 7 from beginning to end, it's, it's specifically talking about being under the law in, in some sense. And the Christian is not under the law. Paul said he wasn't under the law in 1 Corinthians 9. So it, it, it just becomes really difficult to reconcile the idea that Paul was talking about his present condition with this mountain of other passages. Paul said to the Corinthians, um, he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Well, if Paul was constantly failing and constantly succumbing to sin, then the Corinthians shouldn't have imitated him. Uh, Paul said in earlier in 1 Corinthians, I think it was chapter 4, he said, my conscience is totally clear. He said, I'm you know, I'm not even aware of any, you know, of any offense in me. And I, I'm, I'm summarizing what he said. Uh, but, you know, he says things like that. And for him to say all those different things and then to say in Romans 7, I, I just sin nonstop, or at least that's what, it, that's what it sounds like. And I can't do what, what I want to do. 
that seems like a, a radical contradiction there. So again, Romans seven has been interpreted in many different ways. Um, I've read I've read several different interpretations of it over the years, and I admit it's a difficult chapter to to interpret. But I think that I think that the interpretation that Paul is talking about himself, I in my opinion, is very very hard to reconcile with with the context. I appreciate those thoughts. I, I don't want to necessarily uh, hijack the entire conversation about Romans seven now, but um, I do view it a little bit differently. I think that um, uh, I, th- I do think he is talking about himself. I think that he's describing um, how it is that his nature has changed from before Christ. He uh, was a slave to sin and he loved that sin. And then now as a Christian, he sees the the battle between what the Holy Spirit is showing him is right and what his flesh wants to do. And although his flesh still likes those things, because um, I've heard some Christians say, as soon as you come to Christ, that you no longer have a taste for any of the, the, the previous sin that you used to love. Ugh, I don't think that that's real. That's absurd. I mean, that, yeah. But you've mentioned uh, the word sinless perfectionism uh, a couple of times. I know that your background is, is a little bit different than mine. Um, how much does your, you know, your, your background, um, you, you've called yourself, you, you know, an Arminian that you kind of come from that. I know that sinless perfectionism is more of a, a Wesleyan holiness kind of, uh, denominational, uh, distinctive by and large. Um, how much has that influenced your, you know, you're, you're looking into these issues, you're studying these issues and, and trying to answer that question. I mean, have you had people that pastorally you've had to, um, just kind of navigate through that, that you know, thought of feeling, well, I should be sinlessly perfect and, and, and I'm not. And so is that what kind of led you to ask these questions? How good is good enough? Or um, did that not necessarily uh, apply to it? Because I, I feel like I kind of came to it from the other direction of, of how good is good enough. People just seem to think it doesn't, doesn't matter. Just live, live however you want, live however the rest of the world lives. Um, grace of God doesn't really do anything. Um, but sinless perfection is not a, a term that I hear very often or, or something that anybody even cares about. So I, I might be picking up on something that has nothing to do with your your perspective, but I, I just wanted to ask you that. No, it's a fair question. Interestingly enough, the the sinless perfection idea uh, did come from Wesleyanism, but it didn't come from John Wesley himself. Uh, based on the studies that I've done, John John Wesley never taught that a Christian could be completely sinless. That was not something that he that he taught. What he did teach was that it's possible for a Christian to no longer commit willful sins. That doesn't mean he's sinless, though, because you can have sin in your heart of one kind or another, but not be willfully sinning. Uh, so that that's how he defined it. He said that perfect love was possible to attain, and perfect love doesn't mean, again, absolutely perfect. Uh, but it means that you, um, you know, you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. Basically, you love God as much as you possibly can, and you love your neighbor as yourself. But but that doesn't mean that you have no more room to grow. It doesn't mean that that you are absolutely sinless. Uh, so that's that's the way that, as I understand it, John Wesley taught um, holiness. It's John Wesley. What happened was he died, and some of his followers took over his ministry, and and his views were misrepresented by uh, by his followers. I've read multiple Wesleyan scholars who've said the same thing that uh, John Wesley 
when, when he was alive, he had these, uh, he had some followers that were really promoting his views on, on holiness. And they were, they were even at that time telling people, you know, you need to be totally sinless. And John Wesley corrected them and said, uh, even though, even sanctified men still need forgiveness. So he Wesley, as, as far as my studies have shown me, never taught sinless perfection. Um, but he he did teach perfect love in the First John four. What is it? Eighteen. First uh, John four eighteen. Sense of the word. And uh, it, what's interesting is uh, Joseph Benson was a contemporary of John Wesley and a friend of his. And I think maybe even John Wesley encouraged him to write the commentary that he wrote. You can get you can find the commentary on Bible Hub. But I've read much of what Joseph Benson has written on this topic. And uh, Benson says in his commentary that faith does not involve uh, sinless perfection. And that's, that's not what God is expecting from people. So there's a lot of information that, that leads me to believe that, that, that there are certain groups within Wesleyanism that have taken these ideas way beyond what they should. As a matter of fact, I actually got I got some mail. Um, I, I get this mail probably like about once a year, but I get this mail from this uh, hyper holiness group, and the mail it, it has a whole bunch of um, literature from like the 1800s on holiness, and all the literature is basically saying justification means nothing, and you are nothing as a Christian until you experience the second work of grace that that will help you to live totally above sin uh where you won't you won't even need to sin anymore and i had i had read this literature some of it was from charles finney some of it was from others but uh just based on based on what i've read seems very extreme and uh not supported by scripture they they kind of just take a few verses um, from scripture and, and build their build their understanding on on just those few passages and um that that's an extreme that i've that's bothered me in the past and there was a point in my life where I thought boy is this true i mean do i do I have to be sinless uh is that what really what God expects and so that was part of the reason why I started studying this topic as much as I did but just just as just through my own studies of books of romans of First Corinthians, Galatians, uh, other other books. This topic just kept coming up, and that encouraged me to dig into it. And two, like this topic is really important. It's this is if you think about it, um, what's more important than than our holiness? Hmm. Not there's not too many things that are more important than that. And much of what Paul wrote is focused on personal holiness, on the holiness of the church. Yeah, he talked about doctrinal things in certain places, but a lot of it is is holiness and being ready for the second coming of Christ and being blameless. And uh, so I've I have studied this this topic for those reasons, and uh, I really believe that God has led me to uh, you know to to find the 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 middle ground because I feel like I'm I'm really I'm fighting off both extremes. The, the one extreme, God expects nothing except just belief. And the other extreme, God expects perfection and nothing less. And uh, I, I, I land in the middle because I think that's, that's right where the Bible is. 
Yeah. So that, that's a little bit more of my background. I appreciate that. Uh, how, why did you uh, sign up for this newsletter with this mail that you get? Uh, I never on? did. I, it just came in the mail. I, I never, I think what it was, was, um, so the, the Friends Church is considered a holiness church. Mm-hmm. And so the occasionally we and other holiness churches just get this mailing because we're a, you know, we're, we, we're considered a holiness church. And it's one of those groups that thinks they're the only ones that are saved and everyone else in the world is lost. And hmm. if you're not pretty much in agreement with exactly what they're saying, then that you're, uh, you know, you're not on the narrow path. So I don't take that position. Have you uh, petitioned them to see if you could maybe write an article for their next uh, next mailing? I, I haven't done that, but uh, I have information um, in my notes where I, I probably could write an article on this and and state some contrary views. Well, uh, I am in agreement with, uh, you know, all kidding aside about the, the newsletter uh, aspect. I get some funny mail too. It's funny how you, you get to your, uh, people get your name and, and want to send you stuff. Um, uh, this is an important topic. And, you know, I've mentioned before in other conversations, passages like Matthew 7, when, when Jesus is talking about people who will come to him at the end and say, you know, Lord, Lord, and, and he'll say, away from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And that, a passage like that, it just sends chills down my spine. Not because I, I want to be overly judgmental, but it, I mean, God is telling us there are people who think that they're Christians who aren't. And that's a scary reality. And, you know, almost everybody I talk to, they think, well, that could never be me. But everybody who's there in Matthew 7 didn't think it was them. And so, on the one hand, I don't, I do believe that we can have great assurance. And we talked about that before. We talked about that in, in one of our other videos, you know, about perseverance in the saints. And, and I, I believe that we can have great assurance. I think that the passage that you read from, from Peter is uh, a passage that we can have great assurance. If we're on this path and we see these things, we see this evidence, that's a real present tense, tangible proof that we are in Christ. There is no condemnation for us. This is a reality. And we can, we can rejoice that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But um, a study that I did that's related to this, and I've put some videos here on our our YouTube channel, maybe I'll link to those as well, but um, a study of what it really means to deny the Lord. And we talked about this passage when when Paul wrote to Timothy that, you know, if we deny him, he will deny us um, because he is faithful and he can't deny himself. We talked about that passage. And so, I mean, what does that mean to deny the Lord? Some people think that that was only about our words. But based on an Old Testament foundation and based on the way that Paul talks about that elsewhere in the New Testament, I think that we need to be very careful that we don't deny him by our deeds, by, by claiming his name upon ourselves, and then living in ways that are completely contrary, living in ways like Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, like he wrote in Galatians chapter 5, writing to believers, saying, don't be deceived, don't live in these ways. And um, I, I think that Christians should at least take that seriously, that they should do the, the study for themselves. They shouldn't just gather for themselves teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear, that the Holy Spirit has come into their life to you know, give them salvation and allow them to live however they want. Um, I think that we should be very nervous if we have teachers in our life who tell us that uh, the message of Christianity is not what Jesus taught, that if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me, but that the, instead the message is that we can gratify ourselves and that God just wants us to have whatever our heart's desire is. Um, and so, you know, if you want to evaluate these things, don't just 
pick it based on the biggest following or whatever, but actually take up your Bible and read it. And like you said, that's how I've kind of come to these conclusions as well. So um, is there anything else that you would add as we're uh, kind of wrapping up maybe this conversation, anything else that uh, from your personal study that we haven't talked about yet to uh, to put on the table for uh, discussion today? Yeah, a ton that we don't have time for today. Um, <laughs> but uh, you, you had mentioned Matthew 7, and Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, to be not prophesy in your name, and your name drive out demons and perform many miracles. And he'll tell them, I never knew you. Uh, and now it's interesting in that verse, the, the reason why they're rejected is not due to a lack of belief, because they call him Lord, Lord, Lord. Didn't we do all these things for you? They, they, they did in some sense believe in him. But Jesus said the reason they're rejected is because they practice lawlessness. Hmm. In other words, it's it's their it was their I don't know how else to take it. It was their behavior that kept them out. And obviously, based on what we've said, we can conclude that if if God if Christ never knew them, then that means they were never saved, and it means that uh, they were never never walking in the Spirit. But they they had some kind of belief. They must have, because if they didn't have any belief, then they wouldn't they wouldn't have prophesied in his name and drove out demons and performed miracles. And we don't know if Jesus is using hyperbole there or not. I, it, it, there's there's a few different ways to interpret Jesus' words there. I want to be careful with that. But the main point is that whatever kind of belief they had, it wasn't enough because it didn't produce holiness. Hmm. And that's that is the main point there. You'll know a tree by its fruit. If a tree has only rotten fruit all the time, uh, then that tree is is dead. It's yeah. it's it has it doesn't have life in it. It, it might it may look alive, but really it's dead. And we need to be very careful. We need to examine ourselves. You know, um, Jesus said, "Be on the alert or be watchful for His coming," and you don't become watchful by staring at the sky with binoculars, seeing if Jesus is up there somewhere. But you, you're you watchful by watching your own heart, by guarding your own heart and making sure that that you're walking in the Spirit, that your heart is not being conquered by sin. Yes, Christians struggle with sin. I struggle with sin. Uh, I, I'm still trying to put sin to death in my life. Um, I'm not perfectly sinless yet, um, so I just, I just want to, you know, I want to people, I want people to realize this is a big deal. It's a mm. really, really big deal. It's, it's actually maybe the biggest deal. Mm. You, you, as far as spiritual formation goes, you have to guard your heart, um, and if if you're aware of any sin, confess your sin, repent, and ask God to help you. Put this sin to death in your life and take take sin very seriously. You know, it's interesting in, in the in the early church, if you if you read the church fathers, uh up until Augustine, I think Augustine completely changed everything. Uh, maybe not everything, but a lot. If you read the, the writings of the church fathers uh prior to Augustine, they were very uh very you know, keen on on holiness and talking about how, you know, if we're not striving for holiness, if we're not 
putting sin to death, then we, we're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. We're, we're going to miss out on that, and we're going to end up being punished for our sins. And this, these are sobering things, but it's like the church just doesn't even believe that stuff anymore. Mm-hmm. The church is, is so far in the other direction now from its, from its earlier days that it's almost like Christianity, and not in every way, because Christianity has remained intact, but as far as holiness and things like that go, it, the church has swung so far in the other direction that it really, I don't want to be too harsh, but it, it bears not a lot of resemblance to the early church. And it's, it's, it's scary. And I, I ask myself, you know, boy, how am I, am I, uh, you know, taking this serious enough? Am I striving enough? And, you know, people say, well, it's not, it's not you. It's, it's, it's all God. Well, but it's not. Um, hmm. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews four eleven, he said, "Make every effort to enter that rest." Yeah, make every effort. I mean, there's there's effort that needs to be exercised on our part, and if it's not, we're not doing our responsibility. We're not taking that taking that serious. So, I just want to caution people because almost everywhere you look, almost all these. All these, you know, so many churches, and again, I'm not trying to condemn them because some churches, I think they 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 really do mean well and they really do love the Lord, but they're just leaving this out. You you have to be striving for holiness, and if you're not, you know, then I would assume that uh, you're you're just you're not walking in the Spirit, and you're you may very well be heading down the broad road to destruction. Now, I, um, I, I know you, and so I hear the sentiment of what you're saying. I know that you say all these things from a position of love, that you have compassion for, for God's people and those who are called by his name. Um, so, you know, I, I, some might hear that as just, you know, <laughs> uh, condemnation or whatever, but I know that that's not what you're saying. When we were preaching through the book of Acts a couple years ago, I, I remember, um, you know, saying to, to the congregation of people that I'm a part of that, you know, back in the early church, they were first called Christians at Antioch because they were obviously different to everyone in the culture. And so they were called Christians by others because their difference was so obvious. And in our culture, we kind of began the whole, like we identify as this, who are you to question it? And getting back to that imagery that you used, uh, that biblical imagery, of course, Christ used this imagery. I've used this imagery before. You'll know a tree by its fruits. And so a, a very simple explanation that I've used for people before is, you know, if you found yourself in a uh, an orchard and you were walking up to a tree and as you're walking up to that tree you can see from a distance these you know oranges in the in the the branches of the tree and as you get a little bit closer you notice that there's a little bit of, a little sign nailed to the tree and the sign says uh, this is an apple tree do you do you believe the sign or do you believe the fruit of course you're going to believe the fruit you know it doesn't matter what it calls itself it doesn't matter what it identifies itself as you're going to believe the fruit that this is a an orange tree that's what's being produced and the reality is, is that what the gospel says is that by our nature, we're children of wrath and we must be transformed. We must be born again. We must um, be changed. That all happens by the grace of God. And so you don't change an orange tree into an apple tree by trying to gather up a bunch of apples and hang them in the branches of the orange tree. That's not how you change its nature. Um, and so that's what a works-based mentality does. It tries to I go to church, I light the candles, getting back to some of the things you said, I help the little old ladies across the street. I do, I do all these things. That's not how you change your nature. 
But God, if he changes our nature, what we should begin to see, even if it's very meager at first, we should begin to see some fruit of the Spirit being produced. And that's how we know. That's where our assurance is. We examine ourselves, see if we're in the face. Is Christ in you? And if he's in you, and if you're in him, then there's no condemnation. And hopefully, we should enjoy, the author of Hebrews talks about that, the, the discipline process, that although it's not pleasant at the time, it, for those who are trained by it, it yields in them the peaceful fruit of righteousness, that we should see growth in righteousness, that this should be our pursuit. We should desire to be fruitful followers of the Lord, that, that he would begin to prune us more and more. And we acknowledge, God, that's, that's uncomfortable, it's unpleasant, but for your glory, it's worth it. And you've already done so much for us, of course, that we would desire to be uh, you know, useful uh, fruitful uh, stewards, instruments, whatever, you know, whatever the analogy is that we use. The Bible uses so many different pictures, but that we, we want to bear fruit for you, good fruit for you. And it's by your grace that makes these things possible. But um, this is an important aspect. And, and so that's an example that I've used, an analogy I've used. You're using similar imagery. That's kind of maybe where I'll, I'll leave it. I'll give you the final word on this if you want. But I, I do agree with you that this is a very important topic. Um, we are not saved by our deeds, but our deeds are not insignificant, and they are the, the outcome or the natural result of a genuine saving faith. And for those who, you know, I mean, much of the world now looks at Christians, and that's a big objection that they have. They go, you're not different than anybody else. You, you engage in all the same things as everybody else. You're just as worldly as everybody else, and yet you think that you're going to heaven and that we're not. And that we've added offense by simply being so worldly and then telling people that we're the only people who are, who are going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And that's not what the early church experienced. The, the, the culture looked at Christians and said, there's something different about you guys. You know, the Jews and Gentiles worshiping God together. That was so obvious, but we don't get Republicans and Democrats worshiping God together. We don't, we don't get, you know, we don't get the, like, there's still so much segregation in the, the, because we've, We've picked up arms and we've made our identity in something else other than in the Messiah who came to be king of the nations and to break down the dividing wall so that we would be unified in Christ. And the world notices that. To, to make it as, as simple as possible, holiness is about, and I know that people are going to say, no, it's more than that. Okay, well, really though, I can sum up holiness in one word, love. And that's... Uh, that's what Jesus said. Jesus said the whole law is summed up in two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the common denominator. Love is, uh, love is what gives us confidence before God. First uh, John 4, 18, I think it is. Perfect love casts out fear. Uh, and if we, if we really want to judge our holiness, we need to ask ourselves, how much do I love God and how much do I love other people? And when I say love, I don't mean that I simply have a fuzzy feeling towards somebody. But love, as Jesus defined it, is treating others the way that you want to be treated for their benefit. And I say their benefit because if I'm doing this to make myself feel good, if that's my motive, that's not. That's not real love. Treating others the way that you want to be treated for their benefit, that's what holy people do. If a person is holy, they love God and they love others, and they want good for others. 
So that it, it just that gives us something specific to strive for. You know, uh, Paul, I believe Paul expected Christ to return in his own day. I know there's some difference of opinion about that, but that's what I believe. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, Paul seemed to have been anticipating the second coming, and he wanted the Thessalonians to be ready for the second coming. And it's interesting what he prayed for to get them ready for the second coming. He prayed that God would cause their love for one another to increase and abound. That was what he was focused on. He said, if your love is increasing, if, it, if it's abounding for one another, then you'll be blameless when Christ returns. So what should we be focused on? We should be focused on loving God and loving others and putting aside hate, putting aside uh, anger. And as Joe said earlier, and he's right, not all anger is, is sinful. Um, but for, for me and probably for most people, anger very easily leads to sin. Um, so we need to be cautious about that. We need to be forgiving. We need to not hold grudges. We need to we need to love people, and that's that is the main that's the main thing, and and we cannot do this in our own strength. That's why Paul prayed that God would work this in the Thessalonians. We need to pray that God would work this in us, that God would give us this love for for other people, because it doesn't come from our flesh. One thing that you cannot do is you can't just work this up in yourself and just all of a sudden through your own efforts, uh, be a loving person. We have to, uh, we have to be submitted to the Holy spirit. And one of the fruits of the spirit is love. So it's, it's about focusing on love through the power of the Holy spirit. And if we just, and it sounds overly simplistic, I know, but if we, if we're focused on that, if that is our aim, we are going to grow in holiness and we're going to be holy people who are, going to be confident uh, to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, and we're going, to, we're going to be able to say, Lord, I, I fell short in so many ways, but I strove to love you and love others as much as I could through the Holy Spirit. That's what's going to give us confidence, and that's what we should be striving for, I think, above everything else. Well, Pastor Eric, we will let that be the last word for today, and I, uh, I think that that's well said, and I uh, appreciate uh, you and, and your uh, willingness to uh, pivot with me this morning as we got come, kind of thrown a little bit of a curveball. Of course, we missed uh, Brother Greg, but thank you for uh, sharing uh, some of the things that uh, you've just been studying, uh, uh, again, not just recently, but certainly that had been on your heart and mind. I, I certainly felt it was an interesting and worthwhile and beneficial conversation. If you guys are still watching this and you found this uh, likewise to be a beneficial conversation, consider uh, subscribing. If you haven't subscribed, consider hitting that like button to let uh, YouTube uh, and all the, the rest of the world know that uh, you found this content to be beneficial. And uh, until we see you again, get equipped, obey your king, and glorify your God.